At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We're glad you're here as we return to the book of Genesis for our newest series, Family, Why Bother? In the pages of Genesis, we'll discover all kinds of hurting relationships that prove family has been dysfunctional from the very beginning. Join us as we uncover the only one who can renew and restore our broken families. Well, this is a family Sunday, and, and so again, we have been seeking to integrate our, our worship services with our families and our kids, and to be able to think through uh, what's going on. We're even in a series right now called Family, Why Bother? We started last week with the story of Genesis chapter 1, and really before we ever dived into the issue of family, we started talking about who we are as human beings. Genesis 1 proclaims the reality and the, and the beautiful story that all human beings, every human being, has been made in the image of God to bear his image and to display his glory and to display his likeness and display who he is as his representatives here in this world. He's created us in his image to display him well. He's created us distinctly male and female for his glory and given us complete responsibility to care for and to cultivate and to to craft what he has made here on this earth. And that sounds lovely and good. As we, as human beings start there, we go, yes, wonderful, dignity, value, love, purpose in life. And, and yet none of us feel that way at all, really, about the way things go these days. I mean, isn't, if we just look back at this last week and we think about what's happened again in our country in this last week, just the, the hard and trying and horrible and devastating realities that we feel, we know it's not that way. Image bearers have been murdered. Life has been lost Dignity has not been upheld. Brokenness abounds. And so there's this disconnect between what Genesis 1 proclaims as God has made us and the reality that we feel Monday through Saturday. Why is that the case? And as as we think about this idea of, of why our brokenness is there, we also have to take just a step in and look at our families. This this first book of the Bible, Genesis, deals so much with the reality of family and really the dysfunction of family that comes along the way. I want to do an autopsy this morning, if I can, on why our families are as broken as they are. And I want to just help us through through the lens of what's here in chapter 3 to be able to discern and understand why are our families broken? What is at root here underneath it all? What is the source of our brokenness and our dysfunction and our separation? And and then I want us to see how our families can be healed, how how our families can be whole. Because we we oftentimes, at least I I see it this way, we oftentimes read Genesis 1, we see creation, we hear, hear Genesis 2, the creation story focuses in on God and Adam and Eve in the garden and and that first marriage. And then we get to chapter 3 and it all falls apart and we just kind of think, well, you know, there's no hope. Nothing, nothing good happens until you get to the Gospels and Jesus appears on the scene. But what I want us to see here, even from the very first pages of Scripture, as we do this autopsy of our fall, an autopsy of why there's so much dysfunction in family, as we do that, I want us to see that God has been giving hope all along. That, that there has been a, a 
a promise, a hope that he has laid out from the very first pages for our families, for our lives, that, that would be the thing that would reconcile us and, and return or actually turn back around the dysfunction of our families back into grace and healing and wholeness and salvation. So I'm going to make my outline very, very simple uh, this morning. Uh, the big idea that I would tell you today is that we were made for family, but sin separates us. So let's just get the big idea on the table there. As we do this autopsy there, sin separates us. We were made for family. We were made to be close. We were made for intimacy and with uh, togetherness as family. But, but the reality is, why are we all broken? Sin separates us. And I want us to take a deep dive for a moment into sin and why it is that sin separates our families. And then I'm going to take us into a deep dive on how grace saves our families. What that, what that really looks like. So let's get this idea around our heads that we were made for families. God talks about this in Genesis chapter 2. As he creates all things, chapter 2 focuses in on the story of the garden. There in that moment of, of God creating all things, he makes man out of the dust of the ground, and he gives him dominion and, and authority in the garden. He gives him a role in that. It says in verse 15, the Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to watch it, to work it, to care for it, to cultivate it. And, and there is man, and he's doing that. And yet, just a few verses later in verse 18, the Lord says, another proclamation, it's not good that the man is alone. Humanity was not created for individuality. We were not created for isolation. As we reflect the image of God, we're also reflecting the fact that God is one God in three persons in community. And so as we reflect that, we can't do it by ourselves. God says it's not good that the man be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. I'll give to him an ally, a companion, one who is like him in every way, one who's equal with him, one to be with him in the garden. And so the Lord puts Adam into a deep sleep. He takes one of his ribs, closes up that place, and he forms and fashions a beautiful bride for this man. And, and the end of the passage in chapter two says that God brought the woman to the man. It's the first wedding ceremony. God walks her down the aisle to her new husband, and he is overfilled with joy. He says, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And then we get the declaration of what, where marriage comes from, what it is. This is why a man leaves his father and his mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. And both the man and his wife were naked, yet they felt no shame. Here in, in, in Genesis chapter 2, the beautiful story of family is there. God creates a man, and he creates a woman, and he brings them together, one man and one woman together under the covenant of God for life. And there's intimacy and there's transparency, there's innocence, there's joy, there's beauty. Everything good is there. And we look at that and we go, wonderful, wonderful. We were made for this family. We were made for this life. But, again, we know that's not the case. As we look around our world, as we look around our own families, we know it doesn't feel this way. And in fact, I... I would be so bold to say every one of our families feels dysfunction at some point or another. We, we all feel the brokenness in one way or another, in deep ways, in hard ways, in painful ways. We feel the brokenness of this world. And so, yes, why we were made for family, sin separates us. And there's this, this constant reality of, of us being pulled apart because of our sin. So let's 
Let's get this concept of sin on the table. And let's do the autopsy. And let's try and understand what it is about sin that is separating us again and again and again. Now, Nathan read for us this morning chapter 3 and, and helped us see the story of it. But I want to just kind of hit the high points here so that we can see what's happening. So if we start with the reality that sin separates families, what's going on in our families? How is sin separating us as families? Now, now the first few verses of this tell, the, the perilous tell, of verses 1 through 7, talk about what happened there. We read and we in, we're introduced to an enemy right away. We, we sense and know as we're hearing this story, and this is our story so much as it is a story at the very beginning, as we hear and sense this story, we sense that trouble is, a, is, trouble is brewing. We meet the serpent. Now, the serpent was the most cunning, the most clever of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he came and he said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree of the garden? There's this creature that comes into the garden. He represents evil and chaos, and he's Satan. And he shows up, and he is hell-bent on destroying family. He's hell-bent on destroying what God has made. And so he does that by, by casting doubt on what God has said. He, 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 he finds the vulnerable woman, and he says to her, didn't God really say you can't? I mean, is God that mean to you guys? Like, he places you down here, and then he says, nope, it's all off limits. You can't eat from any tree in the garden. Immediately, he's distorting God's word. He's twisting it. He's counting doubt, casting doubt on what God has said. The woman, she's, she's sharp to this. She, she doesn't really feel that God is that adverse against her. So he, she answers, and she says back to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden. So he's like, no, we have freedom to eat here. We can, we can partake of this. But the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, she says, God said, so now she recounts God's word, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. Now she's mostly right here. Where she got a little extra phrase, we don't know. I'm going to blame Adam for that. But there it is. She says, we must not eat it, which is what God has said, or touch it. It's maybe as if someone is, she's brought in some legalism here and said, you know, listen, it's not just that I don't want to eat it, but I'm not going to touch it. I'm going to put up another fence around it or we will die. So here the word of God has already been distorted just a bit. Trouble is brewing. And in that moment, the serpent takes his strike. He fully denies what God has said. No, verse four, you will not die. I mean, just how opposite is that to what God has said? God, God has said, if you eat of this tree, you will die. He's like, come on. God's a liar. You won't die. In fact, he says, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, he's just completely blowing apart what God has said. He has cast so much doubt on it. He has deceived so deeply. Death is coming. And the devil loves it. He twists God's word. She's now filled with more doubt and distrust. She's now thinking and hearing, wait a second, maybe God is holding back on me. Maybe he doesn't have my best intentions at heart. She doesn't see herself properly, that she has been made in the image of God. She bears his likeness and his resemblance in the world. She doesn't need anything else. And she is utterly deceived. She's deceived that a fruit from a tree could give her what she 
thinks she doesn't have and what God is withholding from her. So deceived that she sees the tree, she goes to it, she takes its fruit, she eats it, and then at the end of verse 6 it says, she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Now this is tragic in so many ways. Like, not just the fact that the woman ate from the tree and disobeyed God there, she was deceived in that, but, but it's so disheartening because of, of what's going on with the man. Sometimes I think we, when we hear the story of Genesis 3, we think that Adam is somewhere off on the back 40 of the garden. Like he's on the tractor tilling out and, and getting some food ready. He's really cultivating things well and off far away. And he has no idea what's going on with, with his wife. He has no idea what's going on with the serpent in the garden. And then he just kind of happens to come along the scene and be like, wait, what? And she's like, here, have some fruit. He's like, okay. And he just falls into it unwittingly. The Bible is clear here. Adam was with her the whole time. He's hearing the same lies of the serpent. He who has heard the voice of God say, do not eat from that tree. I've given you every tree for food. I've brought bountiful blessing upon you, except for that one tree. Don't eat of it or you'll die. He hears that. He hears the, the devil's deception and twisting of God's word. And he goes, yeah, okay. I think I'm going to go along and eat this tree. He knows exactly what he's doing. And he's failing to protect and care for his wife and the garden as he should. And he willfully disobeys. And he takes and he eats. Now that's the event that brings sin into the human race. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. They knew they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Devastation hits the land. Now here's where separation begins to happen. Because sin separates families from that moment of sin, from their rebellion against God, from their choosing their own way and believing the deceptive, deceptive lies of the devil, sin begins to bear fruit. It shows itself out in how the family is separated. Let me just point out three ways which we see the family separated here from this moment. First of all, the, separate, the family begins to be separated by shame. Sin separates by bringing shame in. Notice in verse 7, the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked. Well, didn't they know they were naked before? Nakedness wasn't a thing before. It was just them. Now they, they see each other, they see themselves, and they are filled with shame. They sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. They, they all of a sudden go into hiding. They don't like who they are. They don't like who the other is. They don't want to be seen. They don't want to see. And so they begin to cover and hide the transparency and intimacy and safety and delight they had for each other and held for each other was immediately destroyed as shame and sin fell upon them. Now they're hiding. Now they're covering. Now they're self-protecting. Think about it this way. When you see and start thinking about the skeletons in your closet as a family, you're just remembering the shame that's there. Remember the, the song in the Disney film Encanto? We don't talk about Bruno. The Bruno things are the things of shame in your life that sin has brought in. They're the things you don't want to talk about, the, thing, the people that you don't want to address. And that shame that's there is a result of sin. It's, it's what separates our families. Bruno lives in the closet because no one wants to see him. Sin has brought shame. Another way that sin shows itself up in separating families is that sin induces fear. Where once they had just this 
open, transparent, free relationship with God. He would come and walk with them in the cool of the day, and there was no fear, no fear to stand before a holy God, no fear to be in his presence. Now, all of a sudden, because sin is there, they're terrified. They're terrified of God, and they're terrified of one another. Verse 8 says, the, the man and the wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now let's just do some uh, proper theology here for just a moment. Who is God? God is the one who's created all things. Does God know all things? Yes. Does God see all things? Yes. Is God aware and all wise to everything? Yes. You can't hide from God but they think they can. Fear is now immediately introduced into their lives. It reigns. And so God calls out, where are you in verse nine? Where are you? They're in the bushes, hiding away out of fear. In fact, the man's answer in verse 10 says, I heard you in the garden. This relationship that we normally had, it's now all broken and fractured and separated because I was afraid. Why was he afraid? Because I was naked. I'm ashamed, I'm afraid, I'm hiding. Sin separates us in that way. It brings fear into our relationships. The safest, most secure relationship that humanity had ever had with their creator was now in jeopardy because of their sin. They couldn't enjoy the presence of God with them any longer because God is holy and they were filled with guilt because of their wrongdoing. So that fear of judgment crept in and they hid. Whenever there's fear in your family, there cannot be closeness and intimacy. Fear pushes us away from one another. It separates us from one another. It causes us to abound even in more sin towards one another. Fear is a repellent of family. So we see that the consequences of sin, the, the bearing out of it in the family is we, uh, fear, it's shame, but it's also sin brings us to, to cast blame. Sin separates us by we becoming people that are casting blame on others. We point the finger so God here, I love what he does. Notice God doesn't come in accusing. He doesn't barrel down into the garden and be like, you dumb human beings, look what you've done. What's wrong with you? He doesn't just bellow out accusation and proclamation. He comes in gently. He comes in with meekness, with humility, and he asks questions. His, his asking of questions is a way to prompt repentance in their life. He, he's calling them just to own up on what's happened. And instead of owning up, what do they do? They start pointing the finger. So God asks them, where are you? Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? Yes, the woman, what have you done? All he wants is to hear their honesty, to hear their transparency. But all they get is deflection. All he gets is deflection from them. The man's response is not good. So when God asked him in verse 11, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? Does God know the answer to that? Yes. Does Adam know the answer to that? No. <laughs> he doesn't. He, he all of a sudden points the finger. And he points the finger back at God. He, the sin here is separating them. And, and he points at God and he says, God, this woman that you gave me, it's, her, it's your fault. She gave me the fruit and I ate it. It's your fault, God. Why, why'd you give me this person? Why'd you put her in my life so that now I'm guilty? Now I'm a sinner. 
He, he acts the victim. It's not my fault, God. It's your fault, God. You were the one who made her. Now imagine, imagine dinner that night. You know, after all this event has happened, and Adam and Eve are there and around the table. Maybe it's a nice candlelight dinner. And Adam looks in his wife's eyes and he goes, babe, I just, I love you so much. I'm so thankful for you. How, how do you think that went today? She's like, you blamed me. That's going to be really awkward, right? But that's what sin does. That's how it separates families. We begin to point one another, point the finger away from one another. The woman does it as well. God asks her, what is this you've done? Just, just speak it out, Eve. And, and she's right, but she's also deflecting. The serpent deceived me. Again, I'm the victim. The serpent, he deceived me. Devil made me do it, and I ate. And I ate. It's not good in any way. Every relationship between God and humanity, between human beings, between one another, and even between humanity and nature is separated and fractured. The whole creation groans. If you wonder why families are separating, why there's dysfunction and division and pain because of sin, look for it in where we place blame. The autopsy shows that blame, blaming, pointing the finger, deflection instead of responsibility and owning up is evidence of our clinging to our sin. Sin is there all over the place. It's found in fear and shame and in blaming. And it breaks us apart, divides us. Let me just ask you this. Are you aware of the sin in your life? Are you aware of the sin in your own heart? Are, are you aware of the ways that you have rejected or ignored God, that you haven't done what he has called you to do or made you to be? Do you live without reference to him? That's your sin. And it's fracturing your life and it's fracturing your family. It's fracturing every relationship that you have. Whether that's with your marriage, whether that's towards your children, whether that's as a child towards your parents or any other extended relationship, sin separates families. It breaks us apart. And, and, and until you will own that that's yours, you'll continue to live in that sin. Until you own what, what is yours to own and acknowledge it and repent of it, you'll be buried under the weight of that separation. But that's not the last word of this story here. It's not where the God doesn't go, okay, well, you guys are idiots. Uh, you're terrible. I'm done with you. And send them off. We kind of read chapter, uh, the rest of chapter 3 particularly verses 14 to 21, we kind of read them as God is angry. He curses them and then kicks them out of the garden and says, have a good time trying to figure out life. But that's a mistake because so much of what is here is God's grace. God interacts with his people. He interacts with humanity in grace and love and faithful kindness. He sets up for us the rest of the story. Because if this is our origin story, then, then what comes down the road is a story of his kindness and love and rescue of us. And God's rescue of us doesn't just happen some 2,000 years from this event, but, but it happens for us right in this moment. What, what God says to Adam and Eve here is the initial forward surge of his grace in the universe. It's his grace to save families. And so where sin separates families, 
grace saves families. God's grace is beginning to erupt and overflow here. So we have the bad news. We're all sinners. Adam and Eve story, that's our story too. It's the condition of all of us. But there's the good news here. Here's how grace works itself out. Here's how God pours out his grace. Now, what he says here in verses 14 to 21, it's his dialogue. He speaks with each member of this this sinful trio. He speaks to the serpent. He speaks to the woman. He speaks to the man. And he pours out righteousness, equity, justice, but all of that built upon his grace. So when, he, so when he speaks, what he's saying is grace. Let me show you how this, how this grace works. First of all, this grace that saves families is there because it upholds justice. God's grace that, upholds, or that, that saves families is grace that upholds justice. Now God rightly, rightly had the prerogative to eradicate everybody at that moment, just to bring hell down. He could have done that. He speaks to the serpent, and notice this, he curses the serpent. Cursed are you more than any livestock, more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. The curse falls on the serpent and he is brought low. Satan will be defeated and he lives in humiliation. Christ on the cross has defeated Satan. God also not only curses the serpent, our great enemy, but he curses the ground in verse 17. The ground is, he says to the man, the ground is cursed because of you. You'll eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It'll produce thorns and thistles. Instead of going out and plowing a field and planting crop and that just abundantly producing everything and absolutely in a bountiful way, we get weeds, thorns, thistles. We do hard work and our work just, it's vapor. It's like such not fruitful at all. So God curses the serpent and he curses the ground But notice what he doesn't curse. He doesn't curse human beings. God shows his grace even in his justice. He says to the woman, because she multiplied evil in her sin, so her pain in childbearing will be multiplied. The man, because he failed to protect and keep the garden and his wife, he'll have the toil working forever, working the ground to live, and there'll be constant strain between man and woman together throughout their relationship. Humanity failed to display the image of God, so they won't ascend to glory, but they'll descend to the dust, and death will prevail. God is acting justly here, and he's putting things to rights, but nobody unjustly gets what they don't deserve. In fact, God shows grace. The patterns of blame shifting are broken by God's grace. Every party is held accountable, and yet every party is, except for Satan, the great enemy, given hope. Humanity is given hope. See, God's grace is shown to us in upholding justice even today by sending his son to take the penalty of our sin. Christ died in our place to satisfy the justice of God and allow us to be freed. The wages of sin is death, and Christ has died for us. Justice has been served. Sin has been atoned for. Grace has been given. The grace has been shown all as well, not just by showing justice, but also by covering shame. Again, as we read through these verses here, we see God covering over their, their sin and shame. He deals with them. The conclusion of the story has God graciously providing clothing and covering for a man and his wife. 
He sees them in their silly, leafly garments. They can't really cover anything. They're not durable. They're not lasting. And he gives them a better covering. The text says of skins. What they really needed. True clothing. Real covering. Real security for them. He provides the covering of their shame. The end of verse 21 says that he clothed them. God stands in his gracious provider for them in what they need. He cares for them. And it's true for us today that his grace covers our sin as Christ's righteousness covers us. It's in his perfect sinless life that the active obedience that God required is lived out. And it's gifted to us by faith. We receive Christ's righteousness as our own when we believe on him and trust him. His righteousness is credited to us as our righteousness, and we are covered in the righteousness of Christ. Just as God clothed humanity here in his grace, by faith he clothes us in Christ and his righteousness. Our shame is covered. Christ is atoned for our sin. God shows us grace not only by providing justice, atoning for our sins, covering us, taking away our shame, but God shows grace by providing hope. He gives us a future to hope for. The pattern of fear is broken here. Adam and Eve live in fear of being in the presence of God. They live in fear of being close to God. They wonder, how will this bear itself out in their life? Will they live the rest of their lives just in fear of that day when they physically actually die? God gives a promise. Verse 15 is that promise. Some, some have called it, I love this, the first gospel. It's the first promise of hope in the Bible. The Lord says to the serpent, I will put hostility between you and the woman. There's gonna be a big fight between you and humanity from here on out. Between your offspring, the offspring of the serpent, and her offspring, hostility, enmity. And one day will come, God says, where he, and this is a singular masculine pronoun, referring to one person, one man, he will strike your head, even though you will strike his heel. There's coming a day when one will come, this man will come, he will be sent for me, and he will crush your head, serpent. Satan, he will crush your head underfoot. And you'll get a strike in, you'll get a bite out, but it's not fatal. He will strike your head, you will strike his heel, and he will have the victory. The promise here is laid out in giving hope for fallen humanity. A rescuer would come. A redeemer would arrive who would deal with our fear, our guilt, our shame, even our blaming. I love how Kevin DeYoung puts this in his biggest story Bible storybook. He tells the story this way. He says, you need to know that just as all the bad things began to happen, God's promise was beginning to. He promised that one day there would be a snake crusher who would flatten that slimy serpent and save his sinful people. Where sin keeps separating families, it's God's grace that saves us. And it's his grace through Christ, the snake crusher, the Lord Jesus, who put underfoot Satan's sin and death by his own death and resurrection. It is through Christ that we are saved and that our lives and our families are even made whole. Jesus answers the separation that sin brings in the fear of each other by inviting us into the hope of Christ. Our hope and our future is incredibly bright because of Christ. 
His grace saves us. His work saves us. So my question is for you this morning and my, my, my reality for us to think through as we think about our families is where, where are you living in this reality? Are you seeing the results of sin separating you from, from family, from relationships, from one another? Are you seeing the results of that in your life? Or are you leaning in and depending on and taking in the grace of God in Christ Jesus to redeem and restore your hearts, to heal your soul, to reconcile your families? We're either living in the, in the separation of sin or we're living in the salvation of God's grace. Where are you living today? Where are you seeing this? Friends, Christ has come because sin separates us. He's come to save and to reconcile us to one another and to him. If you don't have Christ, you can't expect to see reconciliation ultimately. You won't see salvation. But because of the promise made to us of the one who would come and make all things new and right, we have the promise and the hope, blessed and beautiful hope of restoration and redemption forever. What reality are you standing in? Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org forward slash connect to introduce yourself to us today.